This is, I think, the advice I would give to any documentarian. If you have a chance to create a one-stop shop for your organization, you go out there and do it. Because there's nothing worse than documentation scattered across different re- types of resources, different types of internet, intranet sites. You have to have a single entry point. Welcome to the Knowledge Base Ninjas Podcast, where Gowri Ram Kumar of Document 360 finds the best SaaS self service knowledge bases in the world and then interviews their creators. Let's get started with today's episode. Good day, everyone. Our guest today is Michael Milmitsky, sorry, Michael, Principal Technical Content Developer at Cumulo. Welcome, Michael, to the Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So, uh, Michael, uh, I know you've got lots to share with us today, but uh, before we uh, dive into your uh, technical writing or content developer uh, background, just give me a little bit about yourself and how did you initially got into this field, please? Well, uh, to be perfectly honest, there is a little bit of a difficulty of finding a job when you're just out of university with something like a bachelor's of English. Mm-hmm. So it was actually my father's idea that I try out as a technical writer for the company he was, and I believe still is working at the time, uh, which is Sophos, a uh, security and web appliance company. So I entered the field by um, interning at Sophos where I really learned a lot on the job about things like structured writing, data, the early tool chain. Of course, the landscape of the technical writing industry was very different in 2010 than it is now, but uh, that gave me the confidence that uh, I can pursue this as a career, which is when I actually took a bit of uh, coursework at the British Columbia Institute of Technology completed the program there and proceeded to work for a a series of other tech companies. So I think the important thing is to try out and to see if this is the right thing for you, because uh, a lot of people have misconceptions about what technical communication is. Some people think it's very easy. Some people think it's very complicated, but actually it's a very structured and detailed uh, science and art. So Mm-hmm. Super. So uh, I would like to particularly understand a um, little bit about your educational background, um, because one of your two master's degree is in art, English, language and liter- literature, right? Not exactly. So I have a bachelor honors in English. I have a master's degree in English and I have a PhD in translation uh, studies. Fantastic. So um, have the skills you picked up while studying for this had any influence on your technical writing career? Absolutely. I think the ability to uh, tackle a document in relation to a specific audience never goes away. You know, in the technical writing field, we talk about developing a persona and talking about usability and structuring a document in a way that communicates clearly concisely and succinctly what you want to do. And of course, I think this applies across the board. I mean, the good thing about learning how to be a good communicator is that it's not limited to um, the academic field or any particular field. And uh, I think this is the biggest tragedy in academia right now because, you know, I also got a chance to teach 
writing at the university level when I was a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the younger students don't really see the value, even though they're going into business, even though they're going into economics and medicine. They don't see the value of communication until, of course, they hit the wall in terms of needing to uh, succinctly and concisely and clearly, you know, write grant proposals and uh, and big uh, documents that they don't understand how to parse and so on and so forth. So, yes, I think this applies across the entire industry, uh, whichever industry might be, the ability to write and communicate succinctly. But in my case, I think uh, the ability to tackle complex subjects is also part of it. My dissertation, for instance, was particularly long. I was asked to write about 200 pages. I ended up writing 400 pages <laughs> wow. with a 100-page bibliography but because I really was passionate about what I wanted to do. And uh, I think I did it with, uh, with the scope and focus and dedication that I transferred to the much shorter documents that I now do in the tech field. But I think uh, this ability to discipline yourself mm-hmm. in terms of scoping content, scoping it then, do a persona, and then writing and rewriting and editing, that ability never goes away. Absolutely. Very well said, uh, Michael. And I should again uh, emphasize and congratulate you on all the uh, uh, education you've done, especially the PhD. So hats off to you once again. Uh, So let's just bring our focus to documentation a little bit more. Uh, So what's your documentation process at uh, Cumulo and uh, who is normally involved in such processes? Well, Cumulo, we have uh, team content, and team content is responsible for a broad variety of tasks uh, because we have a lot of deliverables. You know, we have uh, knowledge base articles, release notes, um, support articles. Uh, we have internal documentation for developers, and so um, the way I'm trying to help organize the team right now is I'm trying to introduce a curatorial process to the company. I think it's also an interesting case study because uh, I think there are two extremes. At very large companies such as Amazon where I worked, I think there's an over-indexing on organization and uh, things get too structured and it's very difficult to change the process. If for instance, we wanna change the authoring environment, the language that we use or the build to change. Whereas at a smaller company that's been around for about a decade, such as Cumulo, the challenge is to come up with a process that at first was perhaps a little bit more haphazard because at startups and smaller companies, the idea is to push the product out the door, make it mm-hmm. successful first, yeah. and then shave off all the sharp edges. So this is this is my job right now. I'm helping the company streamline the existing processes by making sure we're speaking with the same voice that we're communicating to the right kind of audience, that we're updating and uh, creating a life cycle for the documentation that is appropriate for the growth that the company has experienced. Very interesting. So you are in the process setting phase uh, right now. Is it fair to say? That's correct. I'm known for juggling multiple balls at the same time. So I'm in the process of actually working up um, new documentation sets uh, while actually restructuring the existing process as well. Yeah. Nice. So how do you manage your documentation workflow? Or maybe um, I'll combine the next question as well. So while setting up uh, such processes and creating documentation, what are the important factors you consider? 
Well, I think it's important to know the product and to know the audience. Mm-hmm. I think these are the two most important things. So obviously, um, no workflow is possible without a deep dive on the actual thing uh, that's being investigated. There is a new uh, product type that's coming out that I can't yet talk about, but in broad terms, um, the process is always the same. Uh, get feet on the ground in terms of seeing what it is, in terms of hardware, You know, getting good photos of the hardware, getting demos of it, you know, in terms of how does it work, what the caveats are, how is it installed. If it's software, what's different between the different offerings, what caveats, again, are there, and what things the customer might trip over. I think we have an additional challenge is that in some of the cases that we encounter, it's not always customers that install our product, but sometimes uh, channel uh, partners and professional service partners. So it's very important to also tackle those different personas, you know, these experts in their field who might have particular needs in terms of understanding the product. So again, to boil it down, understanding the product, understanding the scope, kind of the MVP, the minimum viable product in terms of docs that would help the user, in this case, an administrator or a um or a system integration professional get started and then delivering first the bare minimum of docs and then iterating upon this. I think uh, the mistake that many uh, documentarians make is trying to tackle everything at once. And I think this is the biggest challenge for us perfectionists, but I think it's also very important to choose the most bare necessities and essentials that come first documenting them and building on them incrementally. I found that to be the most profitable course of action. That's true. So just build as you progress and as you experience. And uh, of course, it's an iterative process, isn't it? Absolutely. But there's one more aspect to this. I think it's also important to constantly validate your assumptions. This is why, uh, for instance, at my last job, uh, at Oracle, I would very often perform usability tests on the documentation itself. We must not forget that uh, documentation is a product in its own right. It has its own rules by which it operates. It has its own usability challenges. So as we progress along, uh, we can't rely on our assumptions. So it's also very important to validate these assumptions via usability testing, internal um, user testing, and external customer testing. Yeah, just to um, highlight on the Oracle um, uh, contribution, Michael, I know you worked as a principal technical writer, project manager, and a team lead at Oracle. And I think one of the important aspects that I wanted to highlight is uh, you you were also involved in the reduction of uh, development library content from 1,000 pages to 380 pages. Something like that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John asked me how I got that information. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, what kind of a team did you put together for this? And uh, first of all, how did you tackle it so from 1,000 to a much smaller number? Well, the important thing there, so I think what you're mentioning is the internal um, engineering content library that's internally at Oracle, we've called Developer Central. Again, I'm going to try to walk around the specifics of things I should should not talk about, but the broad strokes picture is that um, I think it's easy for content to fall by the wayside. So what happened there is that uh, there was an existing wiki that had um, thousands of pages, more than a thousand 
more than 10,000 probably of useful content. But it was not clear of uh, to anybody what, which content was the most relevant. So some of it was distilled into about a thousand pages of uh, operational information. So um, big company like Oracle or cloud infrastructure in specific, uh, that portion of the company, it concerns itself with services that build other services, just like in AWS or GCP or whatever, there are existing services that can be used to leverage uh, and build a new service. But how do you do that? You know, How do you pull together things like metering and tagging and the API gateway and all these things to put together a brand new service? Well, you need guidance. You need guidance that uh, is structured and flows in a particular way. So I think when I first arrived on the scene, I tackled individual topics, just trying to get a feel for the landscape. And you know, after having edited them, um, I started speaking with stakeholders, with the owners, with the people who were most uh, benefiting from this content. And I was told that there was no one-stop shop. And this is, I think, the advice I would give to any documentarian. If you have a chance to create a one-stop shop for your organization, you go out there and do it. Because there's nothing worse than documentation scattered across different re types of resources, different types of internet, intranet sites. You have to have a single entry point, whether it's internal or external. It has to centralize information, place it in a taxonomy and a hierarchy, so it's easy to drill down through the content and it's easy to navigate through it as you're learning more. I think uh, my saving grace is that I came through pedagogy, so it was very clear to me that I had to create that learning flow. And I think it's a very good example, too, of an incremental approach. Now, if I were to guess right now, there's probably 100 or 150 pages remaining Mm -hmm. to be migrated over from the old content, though, of course, I don't know exactly what they're working on right now. But what we started doing is that in the beginning, it was just me. And um, I think uh, one more thing that other documentarians can benefit from is the understanding that you can influence without being a manager. So actually, uh, at Oracle, I was not a manager of anybody. Um, I did have a fancy title, but that really meant is that whoever I could attract to my project would simply work with me on it. And I think by virtue of my passion and conviction that the path I was taking was right, I mean, of course, I had to write one pager and uh, put up some uh, collateral that would justify the project and show it to my manager and show it to my skip level manager and explain the direction. I think once my passions and directions were clear, it was less difficult to say, you know, I would need the help of, you know, three or four writers, you know. And I think by the end of it, at the highest point, I think we were five writers altogether, which was, I think, a very good number for that kind of project. So we began by, first of all, well, I began at the time when I was wearing like five different hats. I began by restructuring the existing Confluence space to look and work differently from any other confluence space. So again, we started to treat this as um, as software, you know. So I customized the look and feel using custom CSS. I customized some of the functionality using jQuery. For instance, you couldn't hit save unless you entered an edit comment. 
So there'd be a chain of accountability uh, so that you could easily tell, um, you know, why a change was made. Otherwise, someone would make a change and there's like a lot of blank changes. You don't know why this document is being edited. Mm -hmm. I would implement a different look and feel to show that this space is different from any other space, you know, because there's 10,000 pages somewhere else. But these thousand pages, you know, or these 300 pages will be a completely different story. And then you have to, of course, start attracting attention and raising the profile of this. So I would start holding um, brown bag sessions and presentations to the engineering community in the company and demos and all kinds of things where I would walk people through to explain the value mm -hmm. and also to showcase what we've created at different stages again and again and again. And it would really help to have those, it really helped to have those usability tests in hand to see, oh, well, we've increased usefulness by X number of percent, or we increased usability by Y number of percent. So we actually had very concrete figures to showcase our success. So it was also very good information when petitioning for more writers, when petitioning for more resources, when creating uh, more content. The other thing was, is that it was also important to create a lot of relationships with stakeholders. I and mean, in big companies such as Amazon or Oracle, you have multiple internal organizations, all of mm -hmm. whom obviously need to be represented in the resource such as this. So you need to have someone, you know, a show man or a show woman, a show person who would go and give the spiel to, uh, to these other organizations. This is what we've created. This is how you can be a part of us. But the problem there is, of course, you have to implement the curatorial approach. You know, I mean, if you're just working with a straight up wiki, anyone can come in and start editing your stuff. And that's not acceptable. So uh, it's a matter of setting up permissions and locking it down and creating an affidavit and saying, well, this is why it's locked down. But hey, if you're going to play nice with us, we're going to open that up for you. But these are the rules you have to play by. You know, we have a little, I put together something called the Confluence Usability Guide, a four-page, easy-to-read um, internal style guide that would kind of explain the do's and don'ts. And I believe to this day, they're using it out there, you know, to create highly structured, highly usable content. Because again, if you leave it up to chance or best intentions, you don't you don't have that contribution model with a proper life cycle of contribution, revision, oversight, technical writer involvement, and so on and so forth. Uh, one more thing I built into the system was JIRA integration. Uh, okay. That was really hard to do because uh, we found that no matter where we put that button, people wouldn't see it. So I ended up putting the button in the top panel of the Confluence space, in the right-hand side drop-down, and at the bottom of every page. So on every single page of that internal resource, you could click, um, what do we call it at the end, report an issue, or suggest an edit. That's what it was called at the end, mm -hmm. suggest an edit, where you could literally file a ticket directly into our backlog with the request that you needed, and the SLA would be listed. So it was very clear understanding. It was really clearly broken down of what you can expect. And um, the other button was ask a question. So if you didn't have an edit, but if you wanted to see, is this place right for me, for my content to be hosted or migrated into there? Or, you know, I have a question about your space, you know, then we also had a separate backlog for that. So that took a little bit of work uh, using uh, Jira collectors, a little bit of, bit of jQuery scripting and stuff like that. But I think that created a really good feedback life stuff because that's one of the things that uh, back in the day I didn't really see at a lot of big corporations such as SAP or HP where I worked at direct customer feedback. You know, I did see that a lot at Amazon where you might go to AWS documentation, click the public uh, feedback button or uh, 
whatever it is. And you get a form that when filed would actually be directly going into the backlog of the technical writer. You know, that's actually still surprisingly rare in many cases. And generally, I consider the success of a doc set based on whether there's that feedback loop between the documentarian and the customer. And so once we've introduced all these factors, the interest of the stakeholders, the singular voice of the contributors, the style and standards, the feedback forms, the usability, ongoing usability testing, we've basically created the documentation lifecycle that made this project such a success, which honestly, even after my departure from the company, the process that's in place ensured that nothing fell apart, nothing was disrupted, they just kept going on and on. And I have full confidence that it'll be very successful. Nice. That, that's really um, uh, nice to know the entire process of how things went. Uh, once again, thank you for that uh, detailed uh, description, Michael. Uh, uh, I, we also understand that um, you have a technical, um, you 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 have created technical diagrams using Draw and Photoshop. Um, so, what's your advice to anyone who's about to design a technical diagram? Well, that really depends on what kind of diagram you're creating. I mean, <clears throat> pardon me, when I was in, um, still in, uh, in my schooling for technical writing, I mean, I learned a lot of additional software like Corel and all kinds of things. And I created these fantastical um, illustrations, you know, with meshes and things like that. So it really depends, you know, um, when working in, a software or tech industry, I think we do sometimes have to document hardware devices. So obviously vector illustrations are a good path to go. It's just, I find myself wasting a lot of time working on something in Illustrator or something like that. So um, if you can create something using pre-made shapes, and if your company in fact has shapes, you know, right now we're talking a lot about Visio Cafe, which is a great repository of uh, pre-existing shapes and diagram components and diagrams. Um, all the better. Because again, when you're working in the industry where you're working with predefined components such as API gateway or or a, a messaging queue or a messaging broker, something like that, if you can use pre-existing shapes to draw your diagrams, that's better. If you, however, have to design, you know, your um, appliance or device, you know, then maybe you do need to involve a designer or something like that, right? I've been mm -hmm. lucky enough because I actually have one of those uh, diplomas behind me. It is actually a design diploma. So I do have quite a bit of experience with that kind of thing. But I would say uh, play to your strengths. It's important to move fast. So if you find yourself, yeah, okay, I can design this, but it would take me a million hours to maybe uh, recruit someone or find someone who can help you do it, move faster. But ultimately, with the kind of diagrams I've created, like uh, network architecture system, security architecture diagrams, I think a lot of new tools like Lucidchart and uh, Draw.io are really coming into the spotlight. Whereas I think more traditional tools like Visio are falling out of favor a little bit. Now, um, those other tools like Lucidchart and Draw.io are interoperable with Visio, so you can just save everything as XML and it'll parse it out. But I think it's uh, better to work with those lightweight file formats where it's easier to just design your own shapes and kind of exchange uh, files with um, colleagues. And I think ultimately with some of those web-based interfaces, you don't have to install anything. You just open the website and start designing. And I've designed actually pretty complex diagrams, either to show uh, the kind of project I wanted to design or document a specific uh, piece of software or hardware using that alone. Uh, 
Um, I, I would also recommend against Visio because I think how uh, heavyweight it is sometimes in terms of file sizes and uh, uh, interoperability. And I would strongly recommend a lot of vector formats. I mean, if you are designing an exploded chart or a diagram, I think still Illustrator is still the best um, gold standard, but it's a little bit complicated for a lot of people. So um, there are other open source alternatives out there. It just um, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older, so I've yet to learn some of those. So I'm still kind of an Adobe traditionalist in that regard. <laughs> Thanks. So um, we already touched based on this uh, topic a little bit, like what are the new tools and techniques you can uh, suggest uh, to the upcoming um, writers and designers. So in your opinion, what has been the most important innovation when it comes to document tracking during your career? Tracking as in feedback lifecycle? Yeah, I mean, um, when it because you've got ample experience in uh, documentation and uh, various other fields around uh, surrounding fields. So, during your career, what has been the most important innovation um, that you have felt? Wow, this is great. I think you might be surprised to hear my answer because I think the most important innovation was actually the inclusion of the technical writer in the technical writing process. When I was still learning about the software industry in the 90s, a technical writer was someone who sat in the corner and was waiting for the waterfall to hit them on the head. Oh, you finished writing the software? Oh, okay, I can document it. So that was a terrible, terrible process, right? I mean, um, the writer was not integrated into the development process, had a really hard, high learning curve for getting familiarized with the process, and was basically a pariah basically shunned by uh, the developers, you know, some sort of beast that lives in the corner, crawl out and document their stuff, right? What I've seen at a lot of companies more recently is that the technical writer is either integrated into the scrum or integrated into a series of scrums. Actually, at my highest point at Amazon, I was documenting something like four or five services at the same time. It was a little crazy, but uh, I'd go to the standups, I'd go to the meetings. I'd be working very closely with the UX designer on everything from the smallest string on the web console to anything uh, to the most complex API exception, you know. And in fact, my proudest moment was um, when I brought up Amazon MQ at Amazon. Uh, there were a lot of difficulties with that project, I'm not going to lie. But the fact was, uh, as a technical writer, you rarely get to bring something up from scratch completely. You always come in and pick up after someone else. It's like, oh, they left this uh, deprecated doc set. You know, we need to rework and make it new, or we need to convert this to a new format. In that case, I got to basically bring up a developer guide, a REST API guide, an SDK guide, everything from scratch completely. And it was an exhilarating experience, as exhilarating as it was challenging, because I was there with the developers telling them when they didn't name an API correct. I was there with a the designer telling uh, him when they didn't um, structure the interface, you know, in a way that made sense because I already worked on other Amazon messaging systems that could advise them, you know, to structure things that would be more familiar to customers. I was there when they changed from a SOAP-based API to a REST-based API. So basically that broke my entire tool chain. And I had to write this insane bash script that would convert the strings just so I could render them in XML, just so we could release it, reinvent, right? So, uh, Obviously, this created a lot of camaraderie. It was a lot of fun. But um, I think the fact was is that that was the first time when it was completely 
integrated end-to-end into the software development lifecycle. And I believe this is the gold standard of the best uh, element of the evolution of technical writer, technical writing and technical writers. Uh, the integration of these folks into the lively and complicated process rather than having them sit in the corner. Nice. Um, so one thing that we, uh, we did not um, talk a lot about is what's the nature of your uh, documentation with uh, Cumulo? Is it uh, publicly available or only customers are able to access them, Michael? Well, currently Cumulo has uh, kind of a complicated um, documentation system where uh, the more complex aspects of the API are within the product itself. So uh, when you actually sign up and log in into the uh, the web UI, you can actually easily see right away how the API works. You have some uh, uh, lively demonstrations that based on the actual operation connected to the actual running cluster. Um, so that's part of the product. Outside of the product, you have a very comprehensive knowledge base that our customer success and uh, fellow um, customers and users used to inform themselves. And as I mentioned, we also have a lot of internal documentation how to help customers and how to actually use the product as well. So right now, um, some of my challenges are is to pull the best of that content to the forefront and standardize it a little bit more so we can serve our customers even better. Great. Um, so um, I know. Uh, let's let's move on to rapid fire round, uh, if that's okay with you, Michael. Absolutely. Uh, fantastic. Uh, you did mention to us in the beginning of the podcast that um, the whole um, idea of you getting into this documentation came from your uh, father's suggestion of why why not try this field. So, but who have you learned the most about documentation from in your career? Well, I think my mentor and friend would be Sean McKenzie, who was my first uh, documentation manager. It's actually an interesting story because Sean was the documentation manager at Sophos, where I interned for the first time. But then I was instrumental in bringing him over to AWS. He was already at Amazon, (laughs) but I brought him to my group. So uh, it's a small world. Um, I think Sean was the first person to teach me about um, what we now think of as kind of the modern development environment. Now, it's funny, but that was before Jira. That was before Git. Uh, we were still using Perforce, you know. So the tool chain was not all there, but the process was in the sense that we used uh, Kanban for, it was, um, they had a team of three people, so Sean and two more people and me. And uh, they were using the Kanban. They were using a ticket tracking system. They were using structured writing, which is where I first learned about DITA and the difference between, you know, the concept, task, reference topic, which really inspired me because, you know, um, it's really hard to um, organize your thoughts when you're trying to put something together. And DITA at the time made it really easy. You just pick what, which type of document it is and you write it in that way because, as you know, the DITA tagging is also very restrictive. You know, what can be nested within what? So it actually made my job a lot simpler thinking in terms of structured writing. So I think Sean is really the person who um, greatly inspired me to um, not only pursue the career path, but also um, I think his own contributions, you know, I think he's made a lot of contributions to the Oxygen framework uh, and uh, he was very active in the technical writing space always. So um, I think that gave me a lot of uh, confidence to pursue the field. 
Nice. So thank you, Sean. And um, so can you share a documentation related resource you have consumed recently? Uh, yeah, I think the blog I'd rather be writing, uh, which mm -hmm. is very, very Tom famous. Johnson. Yeah, Tom, his former colleague at Amazon, <laughs> um, uh, is, uh, is obviously very valuable. I think Tom has spent a lot of time creating a network of like-minded individuals. So I think that's an absolutely excellent resource. There are also a lot of very interesting groups on LinkedIn, such as the in the structured content group, I believe is the name, um, and other groups like the Data group that have a lot of very interesting information uh, and specifically challenges that members post where uh, you can learn from each other. But ultimately, um, I think uh, there's a lot of stuff on Stack Exchange where you find in terms of solving a sort of everyday issues, whether or not you're looking into a Jekyll template or uh, some sort of markdown uh, issue, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the public forums where we of course go when something starts going wrong. Next. So thank you, Tom, again there. Um, so what is that one piece of documentation related advice you would give to your 20 year old self? Oof. <laughs> I would say um, get your hands dirtier faster. I was really shy about learning the product when I was younger. And I think I relied too much on um, trusting the developers. I have an anecdote about this. When I was at Amazon, I remember I was writing the Amazon SQS, Simple Key Service Docs, and I wasn't sure about something. So I went to one of the head developers and I said, is this true? And to answer my question, he starts opening my documentation. I said, no, 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 don't look at my docs. I'm trying to write these docs. They're not the source of truth, right? So, so that's, that's the funny thing, right? Um, sometimes people misplace their um, trust in where they get their information. So it's always very important to go to the source the first go to the product, if possible, to the code, and then um, afterwards going to the people who wrote the code and actually finding out that things work. I think that would be the advice that I would give. Nice. So I think uh, we've heard this uh, from many other guests as well. So um, it's better to experience a lot when you're young, I guess. <laughs> I think that's one way of putting it, yes. Yeah. Super. So anything I missed to ask you, Michael, before we say goodbye to our audience today? I think it's been pretty good. <laughs> so once again, uh, as I mentioned, you've got lots to share with us and uh, you did not disappoint us at all. Uh, a lot, lot of uh, uh, good uh, learnings and uh, takeaways in the last uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, appreciate all your uh, kindness in sharing that uh, um, unique journey with us and uh, good luck with all the uh, future coming projects and uh, hopefully we'll meet soon again. Absolutely. Please let me know when this goes live. Sure, sure, uh, Michael, definitely, yeah. <laughs> Take care. Have a wonderful time of day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Knowledge Base Ninjas podcast. Please head to iTunes, rate, and provide honest feedback on the podcast. See you next week.